morning's reading will come from uh, Numbers chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of God. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge, and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You should put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile the camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so, and put them outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, when a man or woman commits any of the sins that the people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him, to whom he did the wrong. But if a man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. And every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations, whatever anyone gives to the priest, shall be his. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jay. Take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 5. Good to be here with you this morning. Great to be alive. If you haven't heard, I'm a little hobbled. Uh, Matt and I and Ryan and Chris went skiing this weekend, and um, we were going so fast it blew the beard right off of Matt, and uh, that scared a tree right out in front of me, and I happened to clip it with my backside. Thank you. Thankfully, that's where all the padding is, and uh, God graciously allowed me to be here this morning, and so I have a new look on life. Numbers chapter 5 this morning. I'm sure you're excited about the passage that David just read, and even more excited when we get to a test for adultery for the rest of the chapter. This chapter is can easily be broken up into three different sections. All of these sections broken up by this, the saying, if you listen as David read, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, he says it in verse 1, he says it in verse uh, five, and he says it in verse 11, breaking into three sections of things that can defile a person that would get them cast out of the camp. And so we look and we see the first section, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. God says this will defile a person, physical impurities. And so he talks about here that they will put out of the camp everyone who is leprous, who has a discharge, and everyone who is unclean through the contact with the dead. And you say, well, what's the big deal? And it may not seem like a big deal until we begin to realize that we are talking about the people of God. And we would realize that maybe this is your wife or your kid or your husband or your mom or your dad. And one day they wake up and look down and they have this skin disease. The word leprous here is used in Leviticus chapter 13 for, as we study the book of Leviticus, for a number of skin diseases. But let's just say you wake up one morning and you look down and here you are, a person of God, you're in the, the covenant nation of God, and you look down and you see this skin disease on your hand. And God says, you will be put out of the camp. You are unclean. And so here you are, a mother, a father, 
and you have to go outside the camp. You wake up and you have this discharge of blood. You have this disease in your blood. And God says, throw no fault of your own. You are defiled. You must live outside the camp. No longer can you come to your home. No longer can you give your kids a hug. No longer can you hug your mom or dad. You are unclean. We also learn in Leviticus, through the priest, anyone that touches a dead person is unclean. And here, if you were to touch a dead person, you are unclean and you are outside the camp until the time of purification that you can come back into the camp. And God says in each one of these, God tells them they are to be put out of the camp and it does not matter. It says in verse 3, you shall put out of them both male and female. It doesn't matter if you're man, if you're woman, if you touch these things, if you have these conditions, you are to go outside the camp. You are defiled until the time that you can be declared clean. But I do want you to show you here and for you to see that at no time in this passage does God say, and the priest can do this and make you clean. And you say, why do these people get cast out of the camp? Why is this important? Why do we learn from this? And why, why through no fault of their own are they defiled to the point that they are cast out of the camp? Why such drastic measures? Well, I think we see a couple things here. Number one, the practical mercy of God. Just think for a moment. Here is a nation of a million people, and as they are out here in the wilderness, walking through the wilderness, imagine what would happen if you had a skin disease, this leprous outbreak. And though it may be hard for the mom or the dad or the child that would be cast out of the camp, imagine if you were to allow this to go on inside the camp, what would happen very quickly. It would spread very quickly and could kill tens of thousands. And so we see even through these, uh, these commands, we see the mercy of God. That God would have them go outside the camp so that it would not spread like wildfire. Think about it in a hot wilderness where someone were out working and all of a sudden they would die. The diseases and things that would come upon a dead body. And so here a person walks up to this bloated dead body and if they were to touch it, and go back and not have their antibacterial soap and their hand washing equipment that we have today. And they would sit down and defile things. And guess what? That disease would pass quickly and many people could very quickly and easily die. So just before we even get into this, understand for a moment, here is the mercy of God. While this is a very difficult for the thing for the person that would come down with any of these diseases or the one that would touch the dead body, at, at best, this is the mercy of God that they would not defile others and that thousands of people would die. They did not have hospitals. They did not have antibiotics like we do today. But secondly, and more importantly, he says, God says in verse 3, you shall put out both male and female, put them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell what we can learn from this passage here is God is serious about the holiness of God. If God is going to dwell in the midst of this camp and God is going to be present in your midst. Remember, we looked in Exodus chapter 33. You remember what Moses said? God, if you are not present, if you do not go up with us, we do not want to go. Right? We don't want the promised land. We don't want all the blessings. We don't want the milk and the honey flowing. If God, if you are not in our midst, we will not go. But here, folks, listen, when God is in your midst, it 
changes things. It changes things. God cannot be in your midst and not change something. It's like this. How many of you like it when mom is home? Right? But kids, let's be honest. When mom leaves for a couple days, rules change, correct? You no longer have to eat broccoli. We're eating pizza every night. Unless we have a good night and go to McDonald's. Amen? Everything changes. Right? Hey, you're putting your clothes in the laundry, right? Until mom leaves. And then what? Let them pack up. We know when she's coming home, we'll just pile them into the washer and wash them all at one time. Correct? Man, can I get an amen? amen? Everything changes. I remember my parents went to Togo, West Africa for two weeks. And we had a couple ladies in our church. It was me and my two brothers. That was all that was home at the time. And so, man, we had a time of it. Dude, we were eating pizza. We were making pizza. My mom cooked all these healthy meals. Don't ever tell my mom this. X this off any recording she can ever listen to off our website. But she made all these healthy meals. And so they left. We had pizza. People in the church taking us out. We had literally not eaten a single healthy meal that she had left us. We fed them to the dog. Um, <laughs> Because we knew she'd be upset, but we didn't want to eat it, right? We're, we're eating ice cream, nachos, pizza, right? And the night before, they were coming home on a Thursday. A couple of ladies after Wednesday night service said, Steve, you and your brothers go to Dairy Queen and gave us 20 bucks. You don't have to convince me that very long. We went to Dairy Queen and three women up, went upstairs and cleaned the entire house. So then when mom come home, guess what? Man, we looked like magicians, right? We were in it. Why? Because when mom is home, everything changes. Folks, we see here in Numbers chapter 5, verse 1 through 4, when God is in your midst, everything changes. Everything changes. Is this not what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If we are to be the people of God, listen, folks. Everything changes. The defilement that we used to bring in has got to change. We are a new creation. And we will look at that more as we get to the application at the end. But look what it says in verse 5. And the people of Israel did so. And they put them outside the camp as the Lord said to Moses. So the people of Israel did. Then we come to the second group of commands. Commands concerning sins against our neighbor. Here... We see the Lord spoke to Moses. Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sins that he has committed. And he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it, and give it, giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. So what is he saying here? He's saying that here is a person who has committed a sin against one of the people of God. They have broken any of the sins. He doesn't name a specific sin. He says any of the sins that people have committed, it is assumed that it is against their neighbor. Why? Because they must make restitution for it. They have broken the law of Leviticus 19, 18, which says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so here they have sinned against their neighbor. But what God is showing us here in verses 6 through 10 is that a sin against your neighbor, a sin against your brother, is not just a sin that is horizontal. What He is showing us is that any sin against your neighbor is also a sin that is vertical. Why? He says He has sinned, commits a sin that people commit by doing what? 
By breaking faith with the Lord. So he says, when we take and we sin against our neighbor, this horizontal sin, that it is not just something that is easy to be washed away, as we often try to do. We try to justify it. We try to push it to the side. It is also a sin against the Lord. Is this not what David said in Psalm 51? Remember, David had sinned with Bathsheba, killed her husband, had, her mur- had him murdered. And as David laments his sin in Psalm 51, what does he say? Against you and you only have I sinned. If we are going to live inside the camp, children of Israel, if you are going to live inside the camp where God is in your midst, then realize a sin against your neighbor is a sin against God. And so he says here, and he decrees how it is to be resolved. How is this to be resolved? Number one, a person must recognize their sin. He says, and breaks faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt. Is this not what the Bible commands us during church discipline? If you have seen a brother that has sinned, you are to do what? Go and, it's not a hard one now, folks. Go and tell him his fault. Why? Because, Maybe he didn't know. Maybe he doesn't realize it. And so here is how sin is to be resolved so that you are not defiled and put outside the camp. You must realize your guilt. Is it not true that we are good at justifying our sin? We, we make it, we're, we're a lot like kids, right? Kid comes up and punches them, somebody in the face and you say, well, just... Ask for forgiveness. What do they say? I'm sorry. For what? Uh, I'm just sorry. Sorry that you got caught. Sorry that dad saw you. I mean, what are you sorry for, right? But what do they not want to admit? I'm sorry that I was an unkind, sinful person that punched you in the face. Nobody wants to admit that. He says, you must realize your guilt. Realize that sin is horizontal against our neighbor and vertically against God. And we need to resolve both places. So when a person recognizes their sin, what are they supposed to do? Number two, he shall confess his sins. He has to own up to it. Confession means I name my sin. Call it what it is. Listen, oftentimes we are not good with this, even with our children. Right? This little, I, man, I'm sorry. Okay. All right. You guys hug and make up. No, they never admitted what? They never admitted the sin that they are guilty of. And God says, if we are going to make this right, and you are no longer going to be defiled in the way that you treated one another, then you need to own up to it and confess your sin. But listen, just saying, man, I'm sorry I did this to you. Or even if you confess it and say, man, I have sinned against you. I'm sorry, you know, I I sinned against you. I ran over your dog. I'm sinned against you. I, I stole some money from you. I sinned against you. In whatever manner that you did, he says what? Confession does not end it. The people of God, for them not to be filed, confess and then they do what? And they shall make full restitution. They have to own up to it. It is not enough to say, well, I'm sorry, please forgive me, I broke this, I have sinned against you. No, he says, you make restitution for it. But not just pay, I mean... You know, isn't this a bad deal? Man, I'm sorry I I stole 10 bucks two years ago. Here's 10 bucks back. Well, guess what? I could use that 10 bucks for a lot of things in the last two years. What does he say? 
When I confess my sin and realize I'm guilty horizontally with my brother and I'm guilty in front of God, then what? It is not enough just to repay. Then I have to do what? Is this not what Zacchaeus did? Remember Zacchaeus was a wee wee little man and climbed up in a tree. He did what? When God confronted him, he got changed. He did what? He went and repaid all the people he stole for, but he didn't just repay the money he stole. Real change says what? I'm going to give back more. Right? It wasn't enough just to give back the stolen stuff. Zacchaeus, we never see Zacchaeus actually told to do that. Where did Zacchaeus get that? Well, it's in the Old Testament. Hey, you go and make restitution. Why? This truly proves what? That you're changed. Right? If you caught me and I, I stole 10 bucks from Matthew down here, and I had his $10, and I said, oh man, please forgive me, I stole your $10, here's your $10 back. Guess what? That's just common sense, right? You stole 10 bucks, you get... But if I said, man, I, I please forgive me, I stole your 10 bucks, here's 20 bucks back, you say, dude. Right? He's serious about this. He's giving money back. So, Bible says, to demonstrate that you are really serious about your sin, you make restitution for his wrong and add a fifth to it. And give it to him who he did no wrong. But God doesn't even just let it go. Maybe there's not even somebody to pay back or somebody to give to. He says, if there's no family, then give it to the priest. Why? You must make restitution to not be defiled. Sin is going to cost you something. But then, fourthly, he says atonement is needed. They would have to take a ram. End of verse 8. In addition to the ram of atonement, which the atonement is made for him. They would have to bring this ram of atonement. What is this a reminder of? This is a reminder that even in our restitution, even in our confession... They do not get to the depths of sin in our heart. We need somebody to atone for us. When I talk to my kids and they're being disciplined and they say, Daddy, I tried and I tried and I cannot do it. Exactly. That is the gospel. You can't do it. You need somebody to atone for you. The depth of sin is too great. And so they must make atonement. Thirdly, We see this long command. Command against sexual impurity. Look at verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act. And if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself or in the spirit of jealousy comes over him, And he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself. Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest, and to bring the offering required of her, a tenth of ephah of barley flour, and he shall pour no oil on it, and no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, and bring iniquity to remembrance. So what is he saying? Here's a man, and he thinks that his wife has cheated on him. Now, there's a lot of different ways this has been resolved especially in Middle Eastern culture. There are records of uh, ways to figure this out, and often it's sided with the man. And so uh, there, there is records of uh, countries that would, if he, if, if he expected his wife had cheated on him, they would go and they'd stand before a judge and they'd put a hot rod iron in the fire and say, well, if you haven't cheated on your husband, you will grab this fire or this rod out of the fire, and when you grab it, it won't burn you. 
If it burns you, you're guilty. Well, duh, right? It's going to burn her. Okay? So even here, let me just put a side note, we see the mercy of God. In a culture that was very male-driven, God has set up a way here for the Israelites to determine, is she guilty, is she not? Is the husband just jealous, or is he not? And so God says, here's what you will do. If you are overcoming jealousy, you will take her before the priest. Now what does this do? Well, this kind of keeps the husband from just flying off the deep end one day and saying, that's it, you cheated on me, you're guilty. Right? Because what does the husband have to do? When you take her before the priest, guess what you have just done? You told everybody that this is what you suspect. Well, this kind of damages your reputation as well. Okay? So this slows down the whole idea of, hey, let's just, you know, we're running you down there and see what happens. No, this is a public event. People can see it. Okay? And so they were to come, and the man will bring his wife to the priest in this offering. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. Once again, the sexual impurity is demonstrated by the fact that you must do what? Go before the holiness of God. God is dwelling in your midst. And so, this command comes. It seems a little weird, right? The first one, I understand the the skin diseases, that's going to spread and thousands of people are going to be dying. I understand the issue of blood. I understand how millions of people living together in tents, side by side, if they offend one another, could very quickly escalate into a war. But what is this? Why sexual impurity? God, this just seems, I mean, aren't they two consenting adults? Don't we hear that in our culture? Right? They're two consenting adults. It doesn't harm anybody. It was even done in secret. The husband doesn't even know. Nobody knows. Why is this a problem? Well, because you're going to bring her and set her before the Lord, and the priest shall take, verse 17, holy water in an earthen vessel, and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hand the grain offering of remembrance, which is a grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings curse. But if you've gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, The Lord take... Make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water bring curse, the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen and Amen. You say, What is all of this? Well, here this woman is brought before the priest, and they would mix up in a vessel a concoction of holy water and dust off the floor of the temple and she would be set before her she would have to take this oath and so through this whole process through this whole process i once again just want to show you even in this where we would look at and say well god just seems to really be going overboard in all this god's mercy and the opportunity time and time again for this woman to repent as she stands before god But there are a few things that we see here. This woman is not, this this sin is not just about 
what she has done to her husband. This sin is about God. Because what must she do? Once again, we saw over here with the confession that this sin against your neighbor, breaking the law of God, is sin against God. And God living in our midst, we would be defiled. Here we see this woman. You say, well, she's just, I mean, she, she just cheated on her husband. He says, no, she will come and make an oath before me. Before she even drinks this concoction, she is going to make an oath before God. Why? Because God wants her to realize, God wants his people to realize that a sin is against man, a sin against your husband, a sin against your neighbor is also a sin against God. And so she makes this oath before God. So when she drinks this water with this dust in it, guess what? I mean, even our society knows this, right? Sean Payton, the, the, the New Orleans Saints head coach, got suspended for a year out of the NFL. Why? Not because of what he did, but because he did what? He lied about it. Even our country, even today, if we look around and say, look at all this lawlessness. The fact is, even today, if you lie about it, guess what? It's ten times worse. So here, this woman's going to make an oath in the tabernacle, in front of the priest, in front of a holy God. She is going to make this oath. I did not cheat on my husband. And if she's cheated on her husband, guess what? She deserves everything she's about to get. Now we can go through and try to define what all this is and unbinding her hair and what it actually means for her thigh to fall away and her body swell. Most believe this just means she will be barren for the rest of her life. Um, nobody knows exactly uh, what that means, but it doesn't sound good. And so, what do we learn from this passage? What is going on here? Number one, I think we learn that God takes sexual purity very seriously. God uses the marriage picture of His covenant with His people in the Old Testament. We turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, you find the New Testament that marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and His church. And God says here that breaking the marriage vow will get you sent out of the camp. Why? Because if you will be unfaithful to the vow that you have made to your husband or to your wife, you will be unfaithful to what? The vow that you have made to God. And God said, if you are unfaithful here, and you are going to break the vow that you made, that you are one flesh, husband and wife, and you are one flesh, and you're willing to break that, you're willing to break any vow with me. You will be defiled. You are sent out of camp. We also see that God takes sexual purity seriously because it's not a personal thing. It affects the entire camp. You say, how does it affect the camp? She was in another tent. Her husband doesn't even know for sure that she's cheated on him. But here, the man may not even know for sure. But this is something that must be known. It was done in private. But your faithfulness in keeping your marriage vows reflects your faithfulness to God. And God says, what is done in private, I will make known. And listen, this will, this will affect them. Because what happened in the... the how, how were... Uh, how were lands passed down in those days? It was all about what? Your firstborn child, right? It was all passed down to children. Well, what happens if all of a sudden the Israelites start sleeping around and now you don't know what? You don't know whose kid it is, right? And when all of a sudden that kid comes out and it doesn't look anything like yours and hey, something's going on, now who does the inheritance get? It gets real messy in a hurry. 
And so God, even in His mercy, is setting forth a way to say, listen, I'm not going to let all this happen. And even though you think it's in private, and even though you think that this is two consenting adults, you are willing to break your marriage vow. You are willing to break a vow with me. Second thing we see from this passage, the way you live matters. The way that you live matters. Notice, they were to put dust in the cup coming before the Lord. And for the Israelite, just for a minute, think back, you're in numbers. Where else was dust eaten? Who else ate dust? Well, you can go back to Exodus chapter 20, right? God gives the Ten Commandments, and what were the Israelites doing? Worshiping the golden calf. So what did, what did Moses do? What did God tell Moses to do? Grind that bad boy up and do what? Chuck it in the drinking water. Right? It was a sign of judgment against him. Go back farther than that. What happened in Genesis chapter 3? Here we have the serpent. And God says you are going to do what? Crawl on your belly the rest of your days and you are going to lick the dust of the ground. Here we have a sign of judgment. This drinking of the dust would reflect the judgment of God because God was saying, listen, if you call yourself a follower of me and you call yourself a follower of the holy God of Israel, then the way that you live matters. Even if you say it's in your private life, even if it's in a tent and your husband doesn't know, what you do matters and reflects on the holiness of God. Folks, would that not change the way we live? If we would get out of this mind, our culture, man, it's our problem. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It doesn't have anything to do with the church. It doesn't have anything to do. It does. It affects the, the testimony and the glory and the holiness and, and uh, the testimony of the holiness of God. Thirdly, how we come to the Lord matters. God takes sexual purity seriously. The way you live matters and how we come before the Lord matters. She used to drink the holy water and the dust from the floor of the tabernacle. She brings that which is holy from before the presence of the Lord into her body. It is going to reveal her sin. If you are in sin and you have cheated on your husband and you are about to take in the holy water and the dust that has been before the holy God of Israel and you're going to take that into your body, guess what the holiness is going to reveal? It's going to reveal your sin. It's not what Jesus says in Matthew 23. So if you are offering your gift on an altar, and remember there that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go and first be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge of the garden you be put in prison. What is he saying? He says, man, before you come before holy God, is this not what we do at communion? Before you take... The sacrament, before you take the bread and you take the wine, you're to do what? Make sure that there's sin and the defilement is out of your body because when you take something that is holy into a defiled body, what does it do? It exposes your wickedness, your defilement. It's interesting that this is the only place in the Old Testament where the prayer that is given to the priest is to be quoted. Every other place, the priest can pray that which he desires to pray. But here, the prayer is a quote. This woman is to hold this offering and is to call down a curse if she is guilty. If you are that woman and you have cheated on your husband, you're about to put that cup to your lip and you're going to pray that to God, guess what? You're calling down judgment on yourself. 
We come to the end and you say, okay, Steve, I understand all that. But I don't get how this applies to me. I don't understand Numbers 5, how, how it applies. I understand what he's doing to the Israelites. And I understand he's trying to save them. And he's trying to be merciful. You want to get your mind blown? This blew my mind. You ready for this? Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 5. You say, how does this apply to us? Luke found it very applicable to us. Luke, as he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Luke, anybody know his occupation? He was a physician. He was a studied man. He knew the Word of God. He was a physician. He knew what defiled you. He knew what they couldn't cure. The priest was never given any way to cure these things. He could declare people clean, but he couldn't cure them. And Luke, in his writing, is writing about, under the inspiration of God, writing about the miracles that Jesus did. And isn't it interesting? Look at Luke chapter 5. And while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Where did we see that? Numbers chapter 5. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. This is the man that's outside the gate. He's defiled. He's screaming, unclean, unclean, unclean. And he comes to Jesus. And here's these Sadducees and these Pharisees, these religious people that had kept the law, knew the law. And all these people are standing around. And Jesus stretched out his hand and what? He touched him. Jesus, don't do it. You're going to be unclean. Jesus, you'll be cast out of the camp. And Jesus reaches down and touches him. And the moment he touches him, Jesus doesn't become unclean. He becomes clean. Turn over to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 43. Remember back, Numbers chapter 5. First person that was defiled in 1 through 4 was the leper, right? Second person was the what? Person that had an issue of blood. And in verse number 42, the end of it, Jesus went and people pressed around Him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood. For 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, Luke was a physician. This woman could not be cured. She was going to be unclean the rest of her life. She had spent everything she could on the best physicians. Nothing could help her. And she came up behind him and touched. Numbers chapter 5. If you touch, if you go back to Leviticus, if you touch the blanket, if you sat on the same chair, you were unclean. Jesus, don't let her touch you. And she touches him. Jesus, you're... Jesus doesn't become unclean. She becomes clean. Third thing, Numbers chapter 5. You had... What? Leper? Issue of blood? And you couldn't do what? Touch a dead person. Right? Verse 49. Luke 8. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus on hearing this answered, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, James, and John, and the mother and the father of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. And he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. And he took her. Jesus! 
Don't touch her. She's dead. You'll be unclean. You'll be defiled. You're going to be cast out of the camp. Luke writes in the order of Numbers chapter 5. Jesus reaches out and he touches her. And when he touches her, guess what? He does not become unclean. She becomes clean. End of number chapter 5. The woman takes that cup, water and dust, that bitter, bitter cup, and raises it to her lips. That takes you to where? Takes you to Matthew 26, 39. Jesus is praying in the garden. He said, if it be your will, let this. Jesus, don't drink that cup. Jesus, don't take that cup. It's full of my wickedness. It's full of my sin. And Jesus takes that cup on Himself. Jesus, you'll become unclean. Jesus takes that bitter cup. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us, Jesus suffered outside the gates of the camp. Jesus went where defiled people go so that you and I could be clean. Jesus picks up that cup and puts it to His lips with that bitter, bitter cup that's going to reveal our sin and our wickedness. And guess what? It doesn't reveal our sin and wickedness. It reveals His righteousness. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus suffered outside the camp in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Therefore, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. What does Numbers chapter 5 teach us and how does that apply to us? If you're a believer here today, Jesus reached down and touched you and He did not become unclean. You became clean. He went outside the camp and drank from that bitter cup so that you could be inside the camp in the midst of God. He says, then go out and bear the reproach. Folks, you just have to walk through the miracles of Jesus and all the times that Jesus constantly tells people, don't tell anybody, my hour's not here. Don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. But you find those people that were made clean, and what do you find? They couldn't keep their mouth shut. Then how can we sit here as a body of Christ and say, praise the Lord, I've been made clean, and we don't want to go out and bear any reproach. Oh, I don't want to tell anybody. What will they think of me? They'll think you've been made clean. You're different. Folks, if you don't want to tell that Jesus made you clean, maybe you're not clean. Maybe you're still defiled outside the camp. Luke takes numbers. Man, this just amped me up. He takes numbers and goes in order and says, Jesus made them clean. If you're here today and you've been made clean, Jesus went outside the camp and died on that cross so that you could be inside the camp, then it should change you. You should be willing to bear reproach. I know He told me not to say anything, but I can't not say anything. I've been healed. How is it that we can walk around and claim to be healed and don't want to talk anything about it? Folks, the gospel is found in Numbers chapter 5. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? I've never been made clean. I'm still outside that camp. Listen, you don't have to stay there. Jesus went outside the camp and died on that hill so that you could be in the presence of God. Today, you can be made clean.